Do you have any good surfing stories? Uh, yeah, I got a few. A quick one. I just rode a, a wave in out in front of the beach chalet in San Francisco, at, uh, Ocean Beach. And as I was on my board paddling back out, I uh, touched this critter. And of course, the first reaction is, shark! Oh God, jaws! But because it was nice and furry, I said, no, 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 it's not a shark. It's probably a seal. So I looked left and right off my board, thinking this little head was going to pop out of the water, because they're kind of like puppies, the seals. But I didn't see anything, so I just kind of dismissed it. And about 10 minutes later, I saw this thing pop up out of the water about 100 yards away from me, and it looked like the turret of a tank. (laughs) And I just thought, what on earth is this? This is like a UFO from the bottom of the ocean. And this head what i i was really i i was short of words i didn't know what it was and it turned very very slowly and then suddenly i see it had to be you know at least a two foot long fish hanging out of this thing's mouth wow <laughs> and again i'm trying to say it's a seal you just smack the seal that's the seal no it's too big <laughs> it's too big well the thing rolled around and suddenly its back flippers popped up out of the water and no joke, the thing was as long as a car. Wow. I mean, I was, I was like, oh, my God. And then I did the math, you know, in, in, in you know, Texas Instruments, and my head started working and did the math, and I said, oh, my God, that's, a, that's an elephant seal. It's a, it's a male. And the thing was, like I said, as big as a car, and it was just laying on its back now having lunch <laughs> on the Pacific Ocean. So, yeah, I, that's what I slapped while I was paddling on my way out. You're listening to Chris Panny, indie rock musician, avid surfer, personal friend of mine. Chris and I met in the mid-90s at a little place called the Stork Club in Oakland, California. Our bands shared the bill that night. He was in a band called the No-Nos. When they hit the stage that night, I was just blown away, man. Just a great alternative rock sound, kind of on the cutting edge, a little bit of a sarcastic wit. Great pop sensibilities, fairly short songs, right to the point, great stage presence. I thought, man, this should be a model for all pants. Everybody should study the no-nos. I mean, these guys know what they're doing. Chris and I became friends after that. I was, I was a fan. A lot of us indie rockers try really hard to hit it big and get that major label contract or to get signed to any label for that matter. Chris Panty shows us that it's not really the end result, but it's the journey that really matters. This episode of Music Life Radio, Riding the Wave, the Chris Panty story. I'm your host, Dan Sauter. Sit back and enjoy a intimate and excellent conversation with indie rocker Chris Panty. Music is uh, its a way to have fun. It's a way to express creativity. It's a way of taking uh, these spontaneous ideas that'll come into my head and um, I'll just have to get on a guitar or start programming drums and start bringing it to fruition where I can actually hear it. It's, it's the stepping stone to songwriting. That's what music is. Well, good. How long have you been uh, doing music? 
I first got intrigued with music when I was 10. My uh, older brother uh, brought home the Sgt. Pepper's album, and uh, I was enamored with Paul McCartney's accent on uh, Getting Better. He would say, Getting Better. And I just thought that was just the best thing I'd heard ever. (laughs) It's getting better all the time. I used to get mad at my school. The teachers that taught me weren't cool. McCartney was a big influence on me, on me in the beginning and uh, prompted me to want to play guitar. What other type of music were you listening to as a child, and did your parents have any particular music that you were listening to that influenced you at all? My father was really into listening to a wide range of music, from swing music. He was really into Benny Goodman, Harry James, Gene Krupa, Tommy Dorsey. So I got used to hearing a lot of that and he was also very into classical music so i heard a lot of beethoven mozart once in a while some vivaldi didn't know the names at the time but i knew it was classical music and most of it i liked i I didn't like opera back then but now i can appreciate it more Um, my mom wasn't so into it a little bit she had a couple of favorites she'd play once in a while but uh, initially, it was the Beatles that I was... That's when I really started to take music more seriously and focus in on it. That's what made you uh, switch from being a listener to wanting to actually play, was the Beatles? Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to play the guitar. McCartney really had a big yeah. influence on me when I was younger. So I was trying to emulate him. He was like a hero. Yeah. And uh, I was very narrow... Two at that age, uh, you know, I was approximately nine or ten years old. And as I started to get older into my teenage years, I had an older friend who was trying to turn me on to Led Zeppelin and Yes and Rush. And I was just like, nothing's better than the Beatles. That's <laughs> it. And you can beat the Beatles, I'll listen. But you, if you can't do better than that, I don't even want to know it. And so he kept telling me, you got to expand your uh, taste. But I resisted for a long time. But I'm glad I did. I mean, that's what I liked, so. Yeah, well, there's a lot of different styles, really, within just the Beatles' own music, from the early stuff that they started out playing to the really experimental stuff that they went through. Yeah, they went through a a wide range of, uh, you know, they started out with very simplistic pop songs, love songs, two to three minutes in length, and then as they progressed and wanted to try new things... You know, suddenly they were, you know, they come out halfway through their career with a with an album like Sgt. Pepper's, which had been, you know, not nobody had done anything like that. So, yeah, it's kind of hard to get tired of that band. I mean, yeah. you might get tired of a period, but um, they really, if you listen, they, they really pioneered so many different, sometimes just a part of a song. 
I, I would hear. And uh, the, the bass guitar and the drums were matching each other. Not that it was a brand new concept, but the way they would do it, like say on the Abbey Road album, I, I, you know, I'm like, gosh, that's what Rush does. Yeah. They play very tightly together. Yeah. And you hear little nuances of it, it with uh, the Beatles music. So they were quite an inspiration. There was an interesting podcast I was listening to. The host is a younger guy. He's like a comedian. And uh, he likes to take albums that he hasn't heard and listen to them and then tell people about them, you know, whether he likes them or not. Now, this is coming from a guy whose favorite bands are Warrant and Poison. He was one of these guys. And he listened to the White Album and he goes, you know what? It's an awesome album. It was really kind of cool to see somebody that really came really from an entirely different generation that really didn't even know what that music was, listen to it, and, and uh, it really has some pretty strong stain power. Pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, great example. I mean, talk about mixing, you know, pop songs with just some experimental noise, backwards messages, just... A culmination of ingenuity and boredom, I guess. <laughs> Pretty much, You yeah. know, it's just like, <laughs> you know, what are we going to do? Well, we've kind of done it all before, so, well, let's just do whatever we feel like. And, yeah, what a great example. So you uh, started out playing guitar. How did you, other than the Beatles being an influence, how did you pick up your first guitar? Did you take lessons? Yeah, when I was about nine years old, ten years old, uh my family made a trip to visit my uh, cousins in New York City. We lived about an hour away from each other. And my cousin Denise had a small acoustic guitar. And I had already been listening to the Beatles and, you know, fantasized about playing an instrument at one, one day. And I saw the guitar and I just made a beeline for it. I don't even think I said hello to anybody. Everybody said, oh, hi, Chris. And my... <laughs> Auntie probably said hello in Italian, and I just made a you know gangway right for the guitar, and I made it very clear I wanted this guitar without uttering a word. Very cool. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, my cousin was really, she was kind of fascinated at my uh, the magnetism I had for this instrument, and uh, she said that she wasn't using it; it was just collecting dust. It was given to her by a friend, and she talked to my mom about you know, do you think Chris would want to take this and learn? And my mom was a bit apprehensive at first, and then she said, well, if you're going to take this, you, you're going to have to take lessons, which I just started wagging my tail. You know, I'm all down with that. I want to, I want to learn to play this. So she started me out. Uh, there was a local music store. I started taking lessons. $3 for a half-hour lesson. <laughs> That's this, a good price. This, this must have been like 1974, 1975 when this happened. And uh, I took lessons for three years, got the basics down, learned how to read music. And then I had a, a friend in the neighborhood uh, who was two years older than me. He was more advanced, and he started showing me some more advanced uh, bar chords and scales and helping me learn how to do solos. And so he was really, uh, you know, he came at a good time. Well, Brown, what age was that again? I was, let's see, I must have been about 13 because I had taken lessons for three years. And then I stopped taking the lessons because I wasn't really learning anything new with them. I, three years, they hadn't even taught me a single bar chord. Uh -huh. 
I finally figured out, <laughs> let's teach this guy slowly so he comes longer and he pays us more ah, money. Tricky, tricky. Tricky, tricky. <laughs> I'm in the wrong business, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, three years, no bar cords. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was really blown away when I would when I would meet other kids my age who were playing you know, less than six months, and they're playing Communication Breakdown. Yeah. And I, and I felt embarrassed. <laughs> you know, I was like, should I lie and say I've only been playing a few weeks? Or <laughs> what kind of teacher is this? <laughs> These guys are taking me for a ride. About uh, age 13, you started getting taught some additional tricks from uh, a neighbor. And uh, then, mm. then what did you do? Where, where did you take it? How did you take it to the next level? One of the things, even from when I first started playing, is I had a good ear for learning songs off of record albums. Uh, in the first couple of years, I started with playing the vocal melodies from my favorite Beatles songs. I would play them on the guitar. And then as I got more advanced, I started learning these more difficult songs. And I finally did appreciate bands like Led Zeppelin and Rush and Yes, Pink Floyd. Uh, still like the Beatles, a little bit of the Stones, you know, a couple songs here and there. So I started to branch out into, into other, other bands. And then when I got to be 17, I... Uh, I met some other kids in high school. Um, one guy, I actually taught him to play the bass guitar. And uh, we found a drummer, and we, uh, we did a three-piece. And each band member brought some of their favorite songs they wanted to cover. So we were doing mostly covers. And then uh, the bass player and I were writing music together, and music and lyrics. So we started early on bringing in original music. And it was good music, I have to say. I mean, looking back on it, it was well-written, it was to the point, it wasn't too long. I think that's where the Beatles, you know, the short pop tune, uh, the song structure became ingrained with me, and we gravitated towards that. Hmm. So, yeah, when I was 17, I had my first band, and we played a couple of school functions and a couple of town functions, and it was a thrill. It was really fun to get up and play in front of people. Yeah, I I had the same experience, but mine was in college. But it was a it was a true blast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's nothing it's quite like on. that first show. <laughs> yeah, it's it's fun. So yeah. your first show was at a, a, a school function? Was it at a dance or? We played. Uh, my my school had a talent show every year, and we uh, we got into the talent show. And uh, the first year we were in, we took. I forget, it was either second or third place. And then the second year we went back, we went, we're like, all right, 
we're going to go for the for the gold, and we took first place. Oh, cool! So we got in the local newspaper, and I think my mom still got the photos, the newsprint <laughs> at home. It's probably all yellow by now. I remember when I was in junior high, I uh, volunteered to do sound at a show that had a live band called Eradicator, and they were like <laughs> a metal band playing priest songs and stuff. That was like in eighth grade. It was so fun. What was that first band called? Did you guys have a name even or? Yeah, we were called the Rapids, like a rapid stream. Yeah. But yeah, that's that was what we were. The the bass player who was uh even more of a, a Beatles fan than I was, he insisted on having a a name with the starting the name out. He's like, I don't care what we call ourselves, but it's gotta start out with the <laughs> I'm like, All right, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> there was a lot of uh like 60s garage bands and stuff that went, had names like that. The Turtles, the Zombies, the whatever. The The. <laughs> the The, exactly. What was your next musical project? Well, I did that for the third and fourth year of uh, high school. And once high school let out and we all graduated, I uh, went off to uh, college my first year, uh, far away from home, about an eight-hour drive, so there was... You know, the band was pretty much over with. You know, the first year at school, I thought maybe I should kind of pay attention since this is costing me a great deal of money. I didn't play in any bands for a couple of years, actually, during college. First first year, I took a jazz class. That was actually, that was interesting. I liked it. Never stuck with it, though, but I still kind of borrow from what I learned every now and again. But then... uh um, I had heard about another college that uh, offered a degree in sound recording, and you were actually a music major, which meant you had to audition to get into the music department. Now, this was back in 1982-83, and at the time, there were only three colleges in all of the United States that offered you a four-year degree in, in recording. Mm-hmm. And uh, the school was getting, on average, a 1,000 applicants every semester because everybody wanted to get into this program. So it was really, really hard. I didn't get in the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I fouled my music audition. It was, I had to play classical guitar, oh, wow. and uh, I was really new to it. So it was a cram course in classical guitar, and I, I didn't make it the first year. But second time around, I got in. Yeah, I started delving into recording, which was really fun to be on the other side and, and push the faders and learn how to use the signal processing equipment. And and I had already written a lot of music, so I thought what a great opportunity to get some of this stuff on tape and see what it sounds like in, in a more finished uh, manner. That was, that was really fun. And in fact, it was so much fun, I ended up going back an extra year to continue working on this degree because I got into the program late. I didn't get in my first year, so I was kind of behind. So in my fifth year, I uh, kind of went through this renaissance period with music. Two, two good friends were really into the alternative underground scene. Bands that are you know popular, everybody knows today, but back then like nobody knew who the police were. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. A lot of people didn't even know who U2 was. Um, nobody knew the Smiths. I mean, the Smiths were somebody that lived down the street from you. <laughs> nobody knew they were they were a band. So I got into all of this really great music, The Cure, The Replacements, The Sex Pistols, New Order, uh, Susie and the Banshees. I mean, I can just 
sit here for 10 minutes and rattle off, you know, a bunch of great bands I got into. And it was sort of like finding a, a, a little golden treat because outside of this circle of friends, I mean, my family to this day has no idea who Morrissey is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's their loss, I guess. <laughs> I gravitated to it so strongly and identified with it, uh, kind of like, I guess, when a person realizes they want to be a doctor or they want to be a lawyer, you know, they kind of find their calling in life. So suddenly I was writing songs faster than I could keep track of. And I had a four-track cassette player at the time, and I was just putting the, my ideas down one after the other. Unfortunately, I had the uh, accessibility of a 24-track studio on campus, so I was getting to record a lot of these songs. So, yeah, the best way to describe it, it was like a renaissance period. I just did a lot of recording, a lot of songwriting, and I got, as far as what I wanted to play and write, I got really focused in on. I knew I wasn't going to be a jazz musician. I wasn't going to be a classical musician. Um, I wasn't going to be a reggae musician. I knew I was going to be like a pop punk yeah, musician. Yeah. Simplistic music with good sarcastic lyrics, <laughs> all in the name of fun. Yeah. So from the program, wh wh where did you go musically? I had recorded about a dozen songs at the college I was at. So my intentions were, when I, when I graduated, was to go back and get an internship in Manhattan at a prominent recording studio and get some more uh, hands-on experience and develop my, uh, my recording background. I hadn't actually been thinking initially of going out and playing so much. I really wanted to try the recording engineering. It just, you know, back then, this was 1986, and it was just, God, I just schlepped all over Manhattan with a list of studios to go to and bring my resume to. But, you know, again, uh, you know, we didn't have home recording back then. If you wanted to record, you had to go to a studio. So back then, the studios really could pick and choose whoever they wanted. And they had people, you know, knocking on their doors all the time. Can I intern? Can I intern? I, I really want to, you know, you know, can I hang out with you? So it was really hard to, to get in. And, you know, there was only so much I was willing to put up with, too. You're not getting paid. You were lucky if they gave you uh, a little bit of travel money. So I did an internship for the first summer after school for about three months, and then towards the end, it just got to be, uh, it wasn't worth my time. I wasn't getting enough hands-on experience. It was mostly like sitting in the back, watching the, the recording session, hmm. and then hanging the mic cables up at the end of the session. So I said, well, this is not really what I signed up for. So then uh, I did a little bit of soul searching, and you know, my heart was always into playing. So I thought, well, maybe I should just go get, I hate to say it, I'll get a day job. <laughs> so I have my nights and weekends free so I can play in a band and record and practice, etc. So uh, that's what I did. I ended up uh, running an ad. I found a really good singer, a bass player, and a drummer. And we were called 900 Rooms. And the singer and, and I were both really into all the bands I mentioned earlier, all the alternative stuff from the 80s, Depeche Mode and... Etc. Um, railway Children. So we, he and I really bonded, and we did a lot of songwriting together, and we played for about three years, uh, this unit. And we did pretty well. I mean, we were about an hour out of Manhattan. Mm -hmm. 
we played mostly in Westchester County, and then we we were lucky to get enough a uh, couple of college gigs, which uh, paid very nicely. The, the problem was I was doing everything outside of just showing up for rehearsal. I was doing all the writing, I was doing all of our marketing, I was getting our gigs, and after three years, I just got burnt out. Talk it was about burnout! I know that feeling. too much. <laughs> Nobody would help. <laughs> And I you kept, have a band of four people, but maybe only one or two people will do the work. <laughs> yeah. So we almost um, – we did have a, a really good opportunity, kind of came and went. Um, while this band was in existence, I used to go to this music store uh, near where I worked and uh, became friendly with the owners. It was a husband-wife team. And – I brought them a cassette of some music that we had recorded, and they really liked it. And then they started to tell me that they were friends with Eddie Kramer. And for those who don't know Eddie Kramer, uh, he was uh, the engineer for the early Led Zeppelin albums. Okay. He got his start engineering uh, Jimi Hendrix. Ah. That was his initial claim to fame. And uh, so these people offered to take our demo to Eddie and, you know, they said, put your phone number on it, because if he likes it, you know, maybe he'll call you back. Well, one night at rehearsal, uh, we used to rehearse at the bass player's house. His mom called downstairs and said, it's a phone call for Chris. I thought maybe it was my mother. <laughs> you know, well, what do I know? So I uh, pick up the phone, and it's this man with an English accent, and he's like, this is Eddie Kramer. <laughs> Paul gave me your cassette, and uh, I was really quite fond of it. You guys are really good. You got a really good sound. And I was just, you know, tickled. <laughs> I'm looking at my band and I'm I'm in in sign language. I'm like, "It's Eddie. It's Eddie Kramer. He's calling. He's on the other line." <laughs> so, uh, he said he wanted to come see us. Well, actually, first he said he wanted to have a meeting. He says, "Yeah, could we, you know, maybe you and a couple of the band, uh, let's go over to he picked this bar and he said, "Let's go over and have a chat." So uh, we, t we talked with him, and, you know, interestingly, he said all the things that I'd been telling my band all along. You got to be 110% on your game. You got to be ready because opportunity will come when you least expect it, and you got to be ready to go. It's like being in the military. Yeah. You just got to be ready to jump. And my band members never took me seriously. Well, we're, here we are having a pint of beer with one of the most famous producer engineers in the world, and the guy's almost saying everything note for note. Yeah. He's like, you don't know how much money's involved this day and age to sign a band. Nobody's going to sign you if you know, you're 90% or 100%. You've got to be 110, and he's slamming his fist down and <laughs> almost knocking our beers over. Yeah. Um, so we chatted with him, and then he said he wanted to come see us play. And he said, you know, if you guys are good... He says, I can get any label in the world to listen to your music within 24 hours. So The man has some influence. He had some, uh, yeah, he had some contacts. So when we uh, left for the night, uh, I remember walking outside with my bass player, Michael, and I just looked at him, and he said, wow, you're right. This is what, you know, we need to be ready to go. And I said, yeah, what do you think? I was just, you know talking because I like hearing my voice. To me, making music is two, four, six, eight, ten people, however many people in a room or orangutans. I don't care who they are, but put them in a room together and let them make music with eye contact. 
and let's get a feeling going between the individuals, you know, and that's what it's all about. I like confrontation in bands. I want to see, you know, like Jimmy Page and Robert Plant will be butting heads, or John Lennon and McCartney will be butting heads, or any band, Mick and Keith butting heads. That's the way, that's creative. Sparks are going to fly, the creative juices are flying, because you're not going to get great music in a vacuum. It doesn't happen. It happens when people interact, and the way to get them to interact is you've got to know your instrument. You really do technically actually have to sit down and practice. And then you play together, and then you play in clubs, and then you get the feedback from the audience, and they're going to tell you whether it sucks or not. We ended up playing a show, and unfortunately, uh, my singer got terrible stage fright, and he was just stiff as a board up there. Yeah. And the three of us, the guitar, bass, and drums, we were, we were on. We were all nervous, but we didn't have to sing. We got to stay in the back and be quiet. <laughs> it's so easy. <laughs> and shaking our boots, but nobody knew. <laughs> yeah, Eddie said he was disappointed with the, the singer's performance, and he said, you know, he's your front man. He's got uh, to be on. He says, otherwise you've got to get rid of him. He says, I'll give you one more chance. So we did a second show, a follow-up, a few weeks later, and... Yeah, basically, he still wasn't impressed, which I have to disagree because I thought Carl was a great singer. Maybe he wasn't confident enough for those shows and he didn't impress, so that was our uh, one really good opportunity that kind of went to smithereens. That's, uh, it's cool that he came out and gave a chance, but yeah, it's rough. It's a rough world. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> do you think maybe it was just not enough bravado from uh, the front man even during the second show, or do you think he did a good job on that one? I think he preferred uh, like a Mick Jagger. He wanted somebody who was more flamboyant, more animated, and Carl was I mean Carl has a, to this day, I mean we're still in touch. He has an incredible voice. He has a beautiful baritone voice, very mm-hmm. full. Um very I mean there were gigs that we played where I would hear this incredible sound, this voice coming out of the PA system that I'd never even heard before. And I'd been playing with him for a couple of years. And I looked at him. I was like, wow, this guy is really, what a catch. I mean, Hmm. he's really great. So, yeah, it was unfortunate. I mean, we didn't get a break, but, oh, well, you know, life goes on. Um, After that opportunity uh, came and went, I think I stuck it out for another six months. But I stopped doing all the additional work. I stopped booking the gigs. Um, I even stopped contributing music. Mm-hmm. The drummer was becoming difficult. He wasn't showing up for rehearsals. And uh, so I gave it another six months, and then I just had enough. It was, you know, I'd done three years with them, and I decided just to get out of the area. And oddly enough, I was not attracted to moving into New York City itself because uh, the times I'd been down there, the the I mean, there is a music scene down there, but I wasn't really impressed with it. I didn't think I'd find what I was looking for, and I didn't want to live in Manhattan. So I ended up skipping up to Boston, which was about a three-hour drive from where I lived. And I had heard from people that Boston had this thriving music scene, and you know, as you know, there was a lot of good music that came out of it in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Well, I got there in <laughs> December of 1989, and I found it to be very difficult to find the types of musicians, uh, the music that I was into. Yeah. 
I ran ad after ad saying I'm looking for, you know, I'd list the influences and I'd get people calling me that were into Judas Priest. Yeah, they had ACDC. More of a, more of a metal hard rock a little more hard hardcore rock. too. There was a big uh, hardcore community too, yeah. And I like those bands. Yeah. I do like those bands, but it wasn't what I was, you know, I was really into the replacements. And, uh, you know, I was looking for something a little bit rougher, you know, again, funny, sarcastic lyrics, really trying to have fun, you know. And, uh, yeah, I've, it surprised me because I thought Boston was more of an alternative music scene. And all in all, it was really disappointing. I mean, it took me a year and a half to find a bass player and a drummer hmm. who w- we were compatible stylistically. Were you running into a lot of people that played in cover bands or was it more original bands like we were just talking about, though, just different style? Lots of original bands, but nobody, like, you know, they'd play me music that they'd recorded, fellow songwriters supposedly like the same bands I liked, and I don't hear the influence in it. If anything, mm-hmm. I heard these long songs with 7 to 18 parts yeah. You know, 20 minutes long. I'm like, how can you tell me you, you the Sex Pistols was the biggest, your most <laughs> favorite, and you follow them tooth and nail, and, you know, every song is 10 minutes long. That's as long as their albums that's, are. That's an album, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get, you know, I didn't get it. So, yeah, a year and a half, a year and a half of posting ads, of going to open mics, of going to shows, and going up to the bands when they were done playing and saying, hey, do you know a bass player and a drummer that likes the Smiths, R.E.M., U2, The Clash, uh, The Smithereens? Nope. Uh, yep, but they're all playing in bands. I mean, mm. so it was really kind of a shock, you know, mm. moving there and coming up empty-handed for so long. But I did, you know, I did uh, play in two different bands while I was there for f- my five-and-a-half-year run in Boston. And the last three years, uh, I played in a pretty good three-piece band. What was the name of that band? King Friday, okay. named after a character from Mr. Rogers' yes, Neighborhood. I, I'm familiar with that. Yeah, you do. Yes. I, I didn't even know who King Friday was. <laughs> I was not as enlightened. He was a little puppet, I think. <laughs> yeah, he was. Very charismatic little puppet. Yep. <laughs> oh, I think he drank a bit too much, too. <laughs> He always had a red nose. He did, yes. <laughs> I can't really remember what he looked like. I think, yeah, well, obviously he must have had a crown on and stuff.
Towards the end, we, we gained uh, the attention of Sony Records in, in L.A. And we actually had a guy out here in San Rafael, over in Marin, who was managing us. He had shopped us to L.A., mm-hmm. a guy named Terry Stark. And uh, Terry used to be in charge of the sound for the MTV Music Awards. Okay. And uh, also uh, had worked with Paul McCartney. In fact, I'd... Hmm. S- seen pictures of him and Paul together when I uh, ended up living with him for a little while uh, when I did move out to the West Coast. Yeah, we finally decided in 1995, the bass player and I had decided that, you know, Boston wasn't really working out and the bass player is had spent a lot of time in California, in Northern California, and he said, why don't we just get out of Boston? Terry's out in San Francisco, Sony's in LA, maybe we should just go to the West Coast and it seemed a bit uh, abrupt to just pick up and move, you know, 3,000 miles across the country. But, you know, I thought about it and I said, yeah, why not? If it doesn't work out, I'll move somewhere else. I think Boston had run its course and uh, we came out here in 1995 uh, minus a drummer. Um, he opted to play it safe and keep his day job. And I arrived in San Rafael with my uh, girlfriend at the time with $12 in my pocket. <laughs> So, but it was the best move I ever made because yeah. I'm still here. That's so. true. Huh. How did you uh, establish roots out here? Well, fortunately, the the bass player I mentioned, he had friends uh, here in San Rafael and in San Francisco. So I wasn't coming to a whole new town empty-handed, not knowing a soul. So uh, I met his friends and uh, we ended up you know, having a place to stay. And then one of the guys was a contractor. So he hooked me up with some construction work to get started, make some money while we, uh, search for a drummer and, uh, tried to keep the momentum going with the music. And we did manage to find a drummer pretty quickly, but as it was, as luck had it, I guess you'd say, uh, Sony decided to pass on us because they felt they would have had to change us too much stylistically. Hmm. And then Terry said, well, we can go after some other labels. Yeah, unfortunately, Sony passed, and Terry did submit the music to some other labels, and I don't think anybody was interested. So we, we still kept at it for a couple of years, maybe another three or four years. Went through some lineup changes. And then eventually the bass player and I stopped playing together. So I went on to form another band, uh, the No-Nos. The No-Nos, yep. 
And I think that's kind of around the time where you and I met. That Yeah, that's exactly when it was. We started playing probably out here in 95. Our first show was like January 2006. And we must have ran into you somewhere between then and 2007, I'm guessing. Maybe 2008, I don't remember. Yeah, we met, I remember we met at the, the original Store the original Club. Store Club, yes. Yeah. yeah. I remember yeah. I got your first CD, this one. We you come, we this? stay. Yeah, we come, we stay, we go. Yeah. Now, is this your first CD of this band, or did you have more? No, I think that was the first one. Now, on here, this has always perplexed me, and I've never, I don't know if I've ever asked you this question or not, but the Tommy is listed as voice and guitar on here. What what's the story behind this? Ah, uh, I, funny. I just told my uh, wife about Tommy. Yeah, uh, about about ten days ago. Funny, Tommy. Tommy will be with us forever. I'll keep it brief. Okay, because it is kind of a long, humorous story. I must turn back the clock now to uh, my right. formulative years when I was in the eighth. Yeah, I was in the eighth grade, and when we would take the the bus home. Uh, in the back of the bus, the, the kids liked to wrestle because it was kind of out of view of the bus driver and the bus driver didn't want to stop to, you know, nobody was fighting, but we would just pile, you know, it was a pile, a, a junior mosh pit, if you will. <laughs> I don't know what the Latin term is for that. <laughs> yeah, there was this guy, uh, Jimmy and Tommy Corkery. They were brothers, they were a year apart, and they, they both had identical haircuts Except Jimmy was a little older. He was my age. He had reddish hair, and Tommy had black hair. But interestingly, they both looked like Darth Vader. <laughs> they had these helmet heads. Wow. So Tommy was the younger one, a year behind me in the seventh grade. Tommy loved to go to the back of the bus and, and wrestle with all the other kids. In fact, when he got on the bus, he was hypnotized. I mean, you could have thrown a can at him and hit him in the head, and it wouldn't have mattered. Because he was just getting to the back of the bus as soon as he could. <laughs> so there was this kid, Philip, uh, who was genetically, a uh, genetic defect. The kid was bigger than a linebacker. Ah, uh, okay. And, you know, he was all of 13 years old. <laughs> In fact, he, could, he took up a whole seat by himself. So one day, Tommy was making a beeline for the back of the bus, and Philip was sitting there taking up a seat by himself, and he just yells, I am Tommy. And I thought that was the weirdest thing. I'm like, I am Tommy. What, what does that mean? And so I said to him, I go, Philip, what does that mean? And Philip just kind of shrugs his shoulders and smiles. Means he's an asshole. And I'm like, oh, wow. I'm like, I wanted to get out of Webster's and confirm this. <laughs> so I am Tommy just became a, you know, a, a term that never left me. <laughs> so when I got into college, I started saying it around my friends, and all my friends thought it was hilarious. So all my friends were saying they were Tommy. Yeah. So we were all Tommy at one point. <laughs> so that's where the name Tommy came from uh -huh. for the for the cop outs. Uh, I'm sorry for the no no CD. So was the was this the original lineup that's on here? Tommy, uh, Richard, and Ingrid. Yeah, yeah, that that was the original lineup. Um, I found them, unlike Boston, I found them pretty quickly. I think I ran an ad in the the Bay Guardian, and Ingrid responded, and Rich responded, all within, I think, within a week. Wow. I couldn't believe it. That's a pre-Craigslist era, too. Yeah, 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 it was all before all these other uh, 
things were available to find fellow musicians. Yeah, we all connected pretty well, and I had a ton of music, and so we we got our repertoire together in, in just a matter of months. And what was nice about this band, un, unlike the uh, the the bands in the past, was everybody was willing to do something besides just show up for rehearsal and hopefully turn their amp on. You know, Ingrid, uh, who was the drummer, she was very keen on booking gigs. Rich helped out with uh, recording. He actually taught me uh, computer system administration, actually. He got me started with that. So uh, we were able to do recordings on his little uh, Pentium, I think it was a Pentium 2. That was like worth a sack of gold back then. Wow, what were you using to record with? Cool Edit Pro. So we were recording with that, and then at some point I got a copy of Cubase. So yeah, we were using that to record. We only had a, a stereo sound card. So we can only record two tracks at a time. Yeah. Well, you can do a lot with two tracks. You can, yeah. Just a lot of trial and error. I mean, we were recording right in our rehearsal space. So if mic placement wasn't working, you know, you couldn't hear the snare drum, we just went back and readjusted until we got a nice uh, live to two mix. And then we overdubbed our voices, additional guitar tracks. Mm -hmm. So it was a good band. Uh, Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Uh, The songs on that album are great. of a a Toronto-based label called Attack Records and Filmworks. The guy that owned the record label wanted to sign us, so he said it was going to be about $50,000 to do an album, uh, recording, press and all that, airplay, etc. So he said uh, he had a silent partner who could put up $25K. Normally he would get the other $25K from the Canadian Arts Endowment, which I thought, wow, that's, that's pretty slick. That's nice, yeah. But because we were American, we wouldn't qualify. And I said, well, we could always throw in a Canadian bongo player. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You know, somebody playing the maracas. (laughs) But he said we would have had to come up with our own funding. And we looked, you know, we looked into a couple of possibilities. But, you know, obviously, it's a little hard to find somebody to throw down 25K on a whim. 
Yeah. So uh, the opportunity kind of came and went, you know. So uh, no record deals. But uh, flattering, nonetheless, yeah. and somebody wow, somebody very, was really keen cool. on us. So eventually the No-Nos uh, lost the drummer. Uh, Ingrid moved on to uh, country yeah. music. And uh, the last bass player we had was Russell, who I believe you met. Yep. And Russell and I kind of played solo for a while, and I had mastered the uh, programming aspect of uh, MIDI uh, recording. So I started programming our drums, and I got them to sound like real drums. So he and I did a, an album's worth of material. We did 12 songs at my uh, home studio in uh, lovely West Oakland. We were called the cop-outs at that point. <laughs> of your career searching for that indie band dream of getting signed getting a really strong band together i mean you've went from uh, the new york scene to the boston scene to the bay area scene really you had a lot of opportunities that just kind of slipped through were you still pursuing that with the cop-outs it was always a big uh, motivating factor in in playing yeah i did want to get on uh you know, that tour bus, like, you know, every musician dreams about and, uh, you know, do it for a living. And I was never looking to do it for 20 years. I didn't want to be a Rolling Stones by any stretch. I just wanted to get a foot in the door, maybe put out a few albums. If the band ends up hating each other, you know, hey, it was great. Glad we got this far. See you later. Move on to other projects, maybe score music for film or Maybe just go to Hawaii and surf, you know, (laughs) whatever. Just kind of make your mark and then know when it's time to get out. So, yeah, I I always did want to get a a deal. Speaking of uh, surfing, I wanted to ask you, what what sources do you draw inspiration from? And I don't mean just about music, but just in life. Um, Probably at the top of the list it would be a good, absurd sense of humor. Uh, it's always good for uh, just snapping you out of a funk, just having a good laugh about something. Um, 
that stuff is inspirational. I mean, honestly, just living out here, my whole quality of life has improved living in the Bay Area because there's so many things to draw upon. You've got San Francisco, um, you've got Berkeley, you've got Marin, you've got Mendocino, you've got the Central Coast, L.A., you know, whatever floats your boat, there's something, I think, for everyone. So uh, just living out here, I find, like, I'm never bored. I mean, maybe four times in 13 years, I was like, gee, I don't know what I want to do right now. But it's so short-lived, I always have something to do. Whether it's doing nothing, or working on a video project, or working on music, or going surfing, scuba diving, uh, go walk around the hills of Marin, wander around San Francisco. I mean, there's always something to do here. Besides surfing, I know you've got other hobbies, and uh, one of your interests is in video and filmmaking. Hmm. What, what have you been doing uh, along those lines? Well, as of late, I've been working on a music video for uh, a good friend of mine uh, whom I went to college with, and uh, we got reacquainted about a year ago on MySpace. I hadn't talked to each other in over 20 years. And uh, we crossed paths, and uh, so we stay in communication. And uh, he emailed me a couple of weeks ago and asked me if I could make a video of one of his songs. It's coming along. I'm I'm definitely slower at video <laughs> editing. I can do sound editing, you know, with my eyes closed. But the video is very. I got to do a lot of tutorials <laughs> on, online to figure it out. But it's coming. Oh, very cool. So it sounds like you're working with your wife on playing some music as well. Yeah, yeah. How's that going? Actually, it's been it's it's new, and uh, it's been really fun and moving along faster than I had expected. Uh, my wife Vicky is, a, is just a natural talent. She uh, expressed interest uh, one night when I was playing the the bass guitar in the kitchen, and she her eyes were just fixed on the fretboard in such a manner that Sounds- I I just said. She's one of us. <laughs> She's one of She's us. She's got the disease. <laughs> so uh, I handed the bass over to her, and I, I started showing her. Uh, I think we initially started learning a Catherine Wheel song and a Jesus and Mary Chain song. And, uh, yeah, she picked up on it very, very quickly, which is a sign of uh, some innate talent that's just yearning to come out. Is this the next musical project? Uh, it's the Chris and Vicky show. Yes. Very good. Uh, we'll probably uh, play to a sellout. Uh, we'll do sellout performances in our apartment in West <laughs> Oakland. So capacity is 25 people. Good. That's very cool. This concludes another episode of Music Life Radio. I'd like to thank Chris and Vicky for stopping by. Check out MySpace slash Soundman1963 for more of Chris Panty's music. All this information is also available on the musicliferadio.com website. And lastly, we'd like to leave you with a full song by the Copouts entitled Another Johnny Song. Thank you.